So let's talk about the end of the world for a few minutes. Is that, is that all right? Does everybody have everybody's attention for... Uh, as you know, we're making our way through First Thessalonians, and one of the interesting uh, things that we come across is that when you just follow the book through, and you know this from reading other sections, that the topics seem to shift rather quickly. And so you'll be reading through, and you know Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount goes from you know stealing to lying to issues of sexuality, and then it seems like he's talking to the the Pharisees about prayer, and, and it seems like uh, it goes from topic to topic, and if you just read Scripture through, it's fascinating. And so in First Thessalonians, where we've been, uh, you know, we've, uh, Paul is addressing a, a young church, a faithful church, a church that's in the middle of persecution, and yet he has a few reminders for them, and he, he gives them, you know, just all sorts of praise for their faithfulness in the gospel, and then he begins to talk to them about, even in the middle of the hardship that they're going through, that they can remain faithful even in a time of persecution, that they can stand strong for their faith. That there could be, you know, this idea of holiness, that God is continuing to make them holy, even in the crucible of a difficult context. In other words, they didn't get a pass just because everything was going, you know, just horrible around them. But what was most important was their life and identity in Christ and what God was wanting to do through them and in them. So we talked last week about that, you know, as he said, you can live a life that pleases God. And he goes through and, and talks through this aspect of how we, you know, love God and prioritize God inside of the moral fabric or the character of who we are, but then how, how we prioritize God in terms of how we love one another. And so we wrapped up last week with that idea that, you know, that God is working to perfect our love and to perfect our character. And then it kind of just shifts. And the shift is a little abrupt, almost like me coming up and just saying, let's talk about the end of the world. But it's almost that stark when you read this, because from where he's going and the ground that he's covering, things begin to, to shift a little bit inside of First Thessalonians chapter 4. And so uh, we're going to read this and just jump right into it. This is right after where we ended uh, last week. Paul says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another or each other with these words. And so Paul moves here, and he's talking to a church that's in the middle of persecution, and one of the, the ways that he tries to make sense of their reality is, you know, there is so much that's coming at you, but the most important thing about who you are is your faith in Jesus Christ and your identity in Christ, and that makes a difference then inside the choices that you make here, but also how you view the spectrum of human history. Because this world that we live in will one day come to an end, the God who... Uh, 
raised Jesus from the dead is going to bring life to your mortal bodies also through the spirit that dwells in you, but that he will come again and receive us unto himself. And so the one who is described as being the author and the finish of our, of our faith, there is a finishing work. And I was thinking about this this week that uh, almost the, you know, what inside of our modern hymnals, you know, the fourth verse of every hymn is usually the heaven verse. And it talks about, you know, when we've been there 10,000 years or when Christ shall come with, you know, with final acclamation, what joy shall fill my heart. Or you, you think about the, the last verse that we sing of hymns. We sing a lot about this day. We talked about, you know, that the end is written inside of, you know, living hope. We talk about, you know, that we can have a fellowship with Christ and, and that the one who has created us and redeemed us uh, has a final chapter that is yet to be written. And we know in piece, pieces and in vague detail what's going to happen, but there's a lot that we do not know. And so for Christians, there are a couple different ways we can approach this, and you've probably seen both, and maybe there's, you're somewhere in the middle, is we could be so concerned with trying to figure it out that it has the potential to distract us from the things that are crucial and most important. And so, you know, you've read all the Left Behind series, you know, you, you subscribe to a couple different websites and you get different updates and different things, or, you know, you watch the news at night and you think, well, you know, that sounds like something I read in the Bible and that sounds like something I read in the Bible. And, and we try to either predict or become so fixated on the fact that, well, certainly the end has to be near that it distracts us from loving the people around us or growing inside of our character or inside of our walk recognizing that the one who holds our hand today is the one who's going to be the architect of all those final events. And so sometimes we can get so consumed that we become distracted. Some of us run the other extreme and we say, well, I can't understand it anyway, so why bother? I'm going to leave that. All I know is I read the, I read the back of the book and we win or, you know, th- those kind of statements that we throw around and we say that because there's so much that I can't understand, I don't want to even run the risk of being distracted, so I'm just going to avoid it. I don't know. I don't care. All, all I know is I want to make sure that I'm there and not there when that, when that final day comes, and that's enough for me. And I don't know that there is a right answer other than that uh, there is an importance to the fact that we have some de- detail about what will happen. We have a certain promise of what we can expect in terms of a relationship and an inheritance And yet there's still so much that we do not know. But Paul writes to this struggling church, struggling in the sense of living amidst persecution, trying to find their identity inside of their community. And and he writes them that they can persevere through hardship, that they want to continue to pursue what it means to be made holy in Christ. But also, he says, I don't want you to be misinformed about what's about to happen. How could they be misinformed? We mentioned that First Thessalonians is the first New Testament writing inside of your Bibles that was written, just about 20 years after the resurrection. And in fact, Paul's planning of the church in this letter, there is a very short window, shorter than some of the other uh, letters that we have from Paul. What could have taken place so quickly to be misinformed? Is there some heresy, you know, out there that says, Oh, you know, all that talk about heaven and everything that doesn't really exist. You know, Jesus lived, you could have a good life now, but, you know, there's no eternity. I don't think so. Was it that some people have said, you know, that the end had already come and that Jesus already came back? I don't 
think that's the case either. But I think they're, they're, they are misinformed in such a way that they begin to either try to figure out what they can't figure out to explain the unexplainable or perhaps to fill in the gaps with things that aren't necessarily biblical. You see, most people inside of the New Testament church felt like Jesus was going to come back inside of their lifetime. Truth be told, throughout you know, modern history, most Christians have believed that Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime. We'll talk about that more in just a couple of moments. But imagine if you were the Thessalonian church. And Jesus, you know, rises from the dead in about 33 AD. Your church is planted maybe in the late, late 40s. Paul's writing this letter in the early 50s. There is, again, a relatively short amount of time. It's almost, you know, for us, someone were to be writing us a letter when the very foundation of everything was in 2000 or 2001. I mean, we're pretty close to the events that have taken place. Based on what Paul begins to write is, we think some of the ways that they are misinformed is, inside of that 20-year period, Jesus hasn't come back yet. There's an expectation that he's going to come back and, and, you know, there's hardship and there's difficulty and there's all these things going on. And it's like, why, you know, if Jesus really does care, either we're messing up and doing something wrong or... Maybe Jesus fell asleep because doesn't he see what we're going through? But if you take that a little bit further, we have the benefit of 2,000 years of church history that we are accustomed to dealing with death. You can imagine in the time since the Thessalonian church was planted and the time when they received this letter, there have been people in their church family that have died. You see, over the course of a three or four year period of time in a community of faith, maybe something happened to Aunt Sally or something happened to Uncle Mo. Or maybe even especially inside of those days, what, what about what maybe happened to baby Joshua? And there are left with these things that we know what we can expect about Jesus' return and we expect it to happen inside of our lifetime. So how do we then make sense with the fact that some people have died. And Paul says, I want to make sure that you're not uninformed about those who have fallen asleep. Meaning they've closed their eyes in death on this side of eternity. They're going to be okay. They're going to meet him in the air just the same way that we are. You know, that there, there is a, an inheritance and a future for them. You don't need to worry about death. And again, this is not an issue for us because we think, all right, Jesus conquered death. We're going to be with him, him in heaven one day, and maybe he's going to come back uh, before we die, or maybe we're going to die first. But either way, we know that we're good. But if you're a part of this church family, and you believe in the power of the resurrection, and you hold in your heart the hope of eternity, and all of a sudden the person that sits on row number five passes away, you have questions. And so Paul writes and he says, we don't want you to be mis, you know, misinformed or to misunderstand things. These things haven't happened yet. We don't know exactly how they're going to happen. But you can take heart that the one who called you unto himself is faithful and that you have an identity and a place with him for eternity. And so he goes on. And he talks about, you know, what it means that we are people who believe in the second coming of Christ. And that the postponement of that year after year 
may leave us with questions, but it also leaves us with an opportunity for the gospel. And so for the early church, the the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, became as motivational inside of their witness and ministry as the first coming of Christ was. That because Jesus is coming back, we have work to do. Because Jesus really came, and he came as the embodiment of God himself, and he lived, and and he suffered, and he died, and he rose again, gives us hope. But also the fact that he's coming again means that there's an urgency to why we exist. And I wonder if that was a little bit easier or more powerful to feel in 52 AD than it is in 2021. Because we can say he's coming back and there's an urgency to our faith, but after all, inside of my lifetime so far, he hasn't come back. But there was an urgency in the early church of what it meant to share their faith and the mission that was theirs because they really believed that they were living on borrowed time and that Jesus was coming back soon. So there's a couple issues that Paul wants to address. And, and the first is, in whatever way that he can, is to, to describe what and how and when Jesus will come back. Like, what do we know and what do we not know? And then the second is, in the meantime, how do we deal with death? And he says we deal with death in in the reality that we don't grieve, verse number 13 says, as people without hope, but as people with a hope. A hope that is living, a hope that is active, a hope that is not just wishful thinking, but a hope that powerfully engages where we live. Verse number 14, he says, because Jesus rose from the dead. Verse number 16, because he says that he will come again goes on in verse 16 and says that if he comes again and he rose, then it also means that we rise with him and that we spend an eternity with him. Now, again, that seems like very basic. If you're going to read anything about the end times, that is like 101 type stuff. But for the Thessalonian church, that's what Paul wanted to make sure that they know that Jesus really did come and he was God in the flesh and he suffered and he died and he rose again. He's going to come back. And because he rose, you rose, and you're going to spend an eternity with him. And that, again, is kind of the meat and potatoes version of the end times, but that is what he wants to make sure that is firmly inside of their minds because there have been people who have died. And it seems like Jesus has has tarried maybe a little bit longer than they would have liked. And so he says, we grieve and we mourn. Do you know, it's okay, and many of you have walked through this, and you know it's okay, but sometimes we think, oh, because we know where we're going, we don't need to mourn like others mourn. But the reality is that life is made up of relationships, and so when you lose an earthly relationship, there is pain, there is loss, there is mourning, and all that is natural and healthy. In fact, if somebody closes you, passes away, and you could easily just say, oh, I'll see him again somewhere, I'm not, I'm not really too sad. I think you're a psychopath, and then we need to talk to you about other... No, like the reality is, like, we feel things, and we should feel things, but we do, it's okay to grieve and to mourn, but we don't do so as people without hope, but because of the hope that's ours in Jesus, we mourn differently. We grieve differently than people who believe that this is just all that there is, or maybe there's something, or I don't know, or there's going to be some version of an afterlife, maybe. No, we know what we know. And it changes how we grieve. We don't normally equate these two. 
Inside the church, we talk about end times and we talk about bereavement. We talk about the second coming, and then in a separate conversation, we talk about caring for people who have lost. But Paul's dealing with these things together, and he says, you can bring comfort to the widows amongst you and to the widowers amongst you and to the people who have lost children, the people who have lost parents, and to come alongside inside of their grief and and recognize that we grieve differently because of the hope that's ours, but also inside of that is this connection to the fact that you were created for more than just this life. And so God did not abandon Jesus in death, and God won't abandon you in the midst of death. And the same God who was there inside of the presence of Jesus when he breathed his last and saw the big picture of what was taking place, that same God deals with and addresses and walks alongside and holds the hand of people who deal with grief here. God knows what it's like to experience the death of someone extremely close to him. And I think Jesus fits that category as somebody close to God. And if God can experience that and walk through that and superintend and watch over the death of his son, then I think in in the midst of us dealing with death that he's willing to walk alongside of us and not abandon us inside of that moment either. It goes on in verse number 14, he says that he's going to bring back the believers who have died. And so, again, there is so much that we don't know, and, and what I mainly want to tell you and explain to you about the end times is that I don't have all the answers. I don't have a timeline for you. I don't have a prediction for you. I don't have a, when A and B and C happens, then you can expect it. Um, and I think I'm in good company because Jesus gave the people around him the same answer. When he says, no one knows the day or the hour, and keep, keep in mind, watch out for the things that are out there, but also make sure that when you watch out for the signs that are out there, it points you into a closer relationship with Jesus and a deeper urgency for the ministry he's called you to. But over the course of the years, there have been people who have tried to give some meaning to what's going to happen and when. And so Irenaeus, you may, he was an early church father, one of the bishops uh, of the early church. And Bishop Irenaeus, along with a few others, said that in 500 AD would be when Jesus would, would return. The reason they said that, in- interestingly, is they tied it to um, the language in the dimensions for Noah's Ark. And it seems silly to us now. It seems like, oh, why would you go and calculate that based on that? But if, you know, when God, you know, provided salvation for Noah and his family and he gave him instructions on how to build it, it was how many cubits? Remember? Genesis, you know, so many cubits by so many cubits. 75, but then, you know, inside of there, there's the number 500 that shows up a few different times. And so they take those dimensions and they said, uh, it must be that in 500 is when Jesus is going to come back. Jesus didn't return in 500. Um, but, you know, there were many who, who thought, you know, that based on what they read and what they saw, 500 seemed like a good number. Pope Sylvester II thought that 1,000 was going to be the year. And if you read through Revelation, the whole, like, millennium and, you know, a 1,000 years, like, S- Sylvester took that literally and said that right around 1,000, or maybe let's be a little bit more specific, 1,033, if we you know, go from the date of the cross and the resurrection, that was when the end would come. 
Pope Innocent, uh, Innocent the Third. Um, I need a new name as a pastor. I want to be like, you know, I want to, I want to have an adjective as my name. But, uh, so Pope Innocent said 1284, and the significance there was it was exactly 666 years after the rise of Islam in 618. And so he did a calculation in his mind, the rise of Islam causing some problems, 666, you know, that's a number that shows up inside of scripture for not so great reasons. And so Pope Innocent III said, how about 1284? That seems to be the date when things are going to happen. Do you know around the, the 1300s when the whole Black Death was sweeping through Europe, there are many who wrote that we are living in the final days and Jesus is coming back in this year or this year. And so there were many leaders inside of those days that thought that that was going to be the case. Martin Luther, when he puts his 95 theses on uh, the door to the castle there and in, in the the Protestant Reformation starts, Luther said that he thought certainly by 1600 would be when Jesus came back. John Wesley also, you know, kind of postulated inside of his mind based on some things he saw in Scripture, and he said 1836. Now, the reason I put these up is, you know, down through, you can look up out there, you know, people who have predicted the end. The point in saying all this is you don't maybe really necessarily know these top three guys, but, you know, they were church leaders. These were not cult leaders, heretics, people who were just trying to sell books. These were pastors and teachers and leaders who thought critically about what they know to be true and tried to interpret the times that they were living in. And even well-intentioned, well-meaning, biblically literate people thought about this, but also guessed wrongly about this. And then you come to some modern history where people have predicted just for the sake of predicting and maybe to sell some books or, you know, maybe just to, to do some things. Benjamin Krem uh, in 1982 took out a full-page ad in the, the LA Times, and I think there was a TV ad as well that predicted the end of the world on such and such a date, and it came and it went. More recently, you've heard probably of Harold Camping, and Harold Camping uh, five different times predicted the end of the world, but in 2011, uh, predicted the date of March uh, 21st, and when March 21st came and went, he said he recalculated, and, you know, almost like the GPS when you missed it, you know, it recalculated, and he said, oh, by the way, it wasn't March, it was actually October 21st. I got got my dates picked up, and then... Um, And then October 21st, 2011 came and went and nothing happened. You add in things like cults and people who are trying to sell books or people who are trying to just make sense of where they're living. You add in events like Y2K or 9-11 or the Vietnam War or, you know, the, the atom bomb, you know, inside of the end of World War II. And these events even propel people to think, because of what I just saw, the end must be near. And there's something interesting about that. By the way, if you were to go and look out there, there's a number of future dates out there Well, as well. There's, there's some predictions for 2026. There's some predictions for, you know, all sorts of things. And eventually, here's the thing. Someone's going to be right eventually, you know, maybe. maybe. And... Um, Here's what I want to say, and I'm not just trying to like either make fun of or say that we shouldn't think about this, but every generation considered it. 
There are leaders in every generation who thought that based on what they saw, they knew what was about to happen and some idea of when. All have been wrong so far. And yet, here's what, you know, I once heard, and I don't know if this was a line in a gospel song, but we're closer today than we've ever been before. That is true. And I think it's okay to wonder, it's okay to think about, it's okay to look and to observe the things that are taking place around us. But here's the danger, and we mentioned this before, is the danger for us is is when we try to interpret contemporary events with a cosmic reality or interpretation. And so because of what I see here, it must mean that this and this and this are taking place. Sometimes for me, I think it it breeds into a little bit of Christian nationalism for us because we think certainly the most important nation in the history of the world has to be America. And because of what I'm noticing going on in America right now, that because this has happened, it must mean the end of the world. And I think that there is, you know, a group of Christians over in China who are saying we've been under like underground for generations And you guys are complaining now that so-and-so took office or such-and-such happened or such-and-such a bill was passed. And it's not to minimize any of that, but it's to say we are always in danger of interpreting contemporary events with a cosmic or eternal meaning that may or may not be the case. Now, again, somebody's going to predict a date at some point, and they're going to be right. And I think it's just going to be, you know, the idea that even a blind squirrel finds a nut once in a while, you know, inside of that, that there is a mystery to what takes place. The second coming is mentioned 318 times inside of the New Testament. That's roughly one out of every 25 verses. So it is something that is spoken to. It is something that is important. In fact, here's just a, a quick, you know, survey of some of the verses that you know In John chapter 14, he says, I go to prepare a place for you and I will come back and take you to myself that where I am, you also may be. In Matthew chapter 16, for the son of man is going to come in his father's glory with his angels and he will reward each person according to what they have done. Philippians chapter three talks about that we have a citizenship in heaven as we eagerly await a savior who's going to come and transform our lowly bodies and they'll, they'll be like his glorious body. In First Peter chapter 5, uh, that the one who is the chief shepherd appears and that will receive a crown of glory that will never fade away. James chapter 5, be patient. Interesting that James would say, be patient, wait until the Lord's coming. And he goes through and he talks about just as a farmer waits that there's a seed that's in the ground and you wait for it to, to sprout. He says, so too, Be patient, but yet stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Now, does that mean that Peter was a liar, or does it mean that there's an expectation that for every person that reads Scripture in every generation, to stand firm, to be patient, to wait, to hope, to expect, even though we don't know all the details? 1 John chapter 2, uh, that that when he appears, that we can be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. And in Hebrews chapter 9, that Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not uh, to bear sin, because he's already done that in his first coming, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And so we wait, and we hope, 
And we trust that the end of human history is not just defined by what happens to us in an earthly sense, but what we await to happen as the culmination of our faith. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, even the Westminster Confession, all point to the reality that we are a people who believe in the second coming of Jesus. So what's all this mean? And, And again, some of this, it's going to be a reminder, it's going to seem very basic, but I think that's where we need to make sure that we are shored up, that we're not distracted by the things we can't understand or that we're not unaware or uninformed about the things that we are meant to understand. And so the return of Christ points, I think, to, to a few things. Christ's returning, you know, returning or his coming provides a couple of things. Focus and motivation for ministry. The reason we do what we do is not just because he's given us gifts and he's given us a passion for ministry and he's called us to it, but because there is an expiration date to the world that you live in. And maybe it's a short time away, maybe it's a long time away, but in the meantime, we have work to do. And so there's a focus and a motivation for ministry that I am so pleased struck people inside of, you know, the the 60s and the 70s AD and the 300s AD and the 800s and the thousands and the 1800s and the 1900s that that you may be here today as a result of somebody else because they knew that we lived in a world with an expiration date, did something that was uncomfortable inside of their faith to make sure that somebody else heard the gospel. They continued teaching Sunday school when you were a little kid and maybe wanted to give it up, but they say, you know what? No, people need to hear and people need to know, and so I'm going to keep teaching. We don't give up and we don't lose hope. There is a focus and a motivation for ministry because we live in light of the second coming. Back to what what Paul talks about. And again, we don't always equate these two, but there's comfort for us in the midst of grief and sorrow that we will one day see those, again, whose faith is in Jesus Christ. But then also we believe as a people that death is not the end. And so there's comfort When we think about the second coming of Jesus, it's a reminder that one day death will ultimately be destroyed. It's a reminder of the death of death. And that there's hope and patience and even rejoicing in the midst of trial. And this was where the Thessalonian church was. That with all this stuff going on around us, you have hope and you can even be patient and you can stand firm in the midst of trial because we know what the ultimate end of human history is is. So verse number 16, it says that he'll come down and with a loud shout. We don't know what that loud shout is. We don't know what will be shouted. Uh, we know that there's also kind of a, the sound of a trumpet in. And, and, and here's where I want to close with this. And if you've ever um, been with me in the midst of a funeral service, maybe you've heard, you know, the, this aspect that I'm about to say that We tend to think that when we think of the end times or that final moment or that transitional moment between this life and the next, we think of the phenomenal. We think of, you know, lightning and thunder and pearly gates and and gold and, you know, coming on clouds. And we think of the big phenomenal cosmic events. But when Jesus talks about this and when the New Testament writers talk about it, they use personal relational language. That God's personal presence comes in the midst of that. And we have the opportunity to see his face, to hear his voice, and to see or to even feel his hand at work.
Now think about this, in all the religions of the world, that if you're going to talk about that final moment where this earthly life is passed away and there is a new reality, a cosmic reality that for all of eternity we're with him, what's unique about Christianity is the ushering in of that is not in the phenomenal, it's in the personal. And so we'll see him. We'll be reunited with him. He will come for us. He is not sending for you a divine limo to pick you up and take you to your new home. But he himself will come for you. In Revelation 21, it talks about, I will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more, mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away and I'm making all things new. But he says, I will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Maybe the best description of the second coming is not when or how, but it's the very fact that the personal presence of God is going to come and the same God that has walked with you by the hand through your life is going to walk you into eternity. And what I say at funeral services sometimes is, you know, I have a little bit of personal space issues sometimes, and there's only two or three people that could probably get, get this close to me. And when you get to the very final pages of Scripture, and these events are going to be described, this, you know, John, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, the inspiration says, I'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. And it's almost like Jesus on the final page of Scripture says, I want to make one thing very clear of all the things that you don't know, and you don't know when, or you don't know how, or what it's going to look like, but, but here's the one picture I want to leave you of what that transition looks like. I'll wipe away every tear from your eye. And there's going to be no more mourning or crying or pain. Not because I've snapped my fingers or even shouted a trumpet, but because my hand and my face and my voice are close to you in the midst of it. I think that speaks to a church that's in the middle of persecution. I think that speaks to a church that is in the young days of their formation and I think it speaks to a church anywhere and everywhere that we dare not forget we don't follow a creed we don't follow a set of beliefs we don't necessarily just follow the fact that things one day are going to be okay we follow a personal savior who gave his life for us and the same God who gave his life for you is also going to walk you into eternity with himself. That kind of God then is going to stick with me every point in between. That if Jesus died for me on the cross and he wipes away every tear from my eyes on that final day, then I can trust him with all the seemingly insignificant things that happen between those two points of human history. We're a people today of hope, of promise, and of a future. Let's make sure we continue to live like that's the case. God, I pray that you would uh, remind us today that you are for us. That you would remind us today that of all the things that we can understand, Lord, you've given us your presence. That we can know you. That we can relate to you. That you want to walk with us. And so in whatever ways today that we struggle or we hurt or we question... Lord, we don't necessarily pray for answers, but we would pray that your personal presence would be ever so near to us.
Lord, we look forward to that final day when, uh, Lord, that you will uh, usher us into an eternity with yourself. Until that day, would you help us to continue to give our lives away in service to you and to your kingdom? Would you help us to trust you with the things that we can't understand? Would you remind us, uh, Lord, of the death of death and that you hold the keys of life? Lord, would you continue to walk with us and lead us? We ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus. Amen.